The reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 20, and we're commencing at, yeah, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I seal the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And this is God's word. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. As Joel brings our message. Susie. Today's passage begins with a story of somebody missing out. I missed out earlier this year, or at least for a short period of time. About 12 months ago, my cousin approached me to officiate his wedding ceremony on the 26th of April in Melbourne. And as an AFL lover, one of the first things I thought of was the Anzac Day game which is like an iconic, you know, over 90,000 people, kind of, you know, if you can't attend a grand final, this is like the next best thing. And I said, I'd love to, <laughs> in the next breath, because we can come to the football game. And uh, it, was a, it was a great honour to be able to conduct my cousin's wedding. But it was also uh, with much joy and anticipation that I was looking forward for my birthday present to be able to go along to this game with Bronnie at the MCG on the 25th. And uh, anyway, I'd found out when tickets were going to go on sale because I knew they would go on sale quickly. I'd marked it in my diary, and uh, the very day that the tickets went on sale, it was like my first thing to do that morning. But putting Daniel in preschool and whatever else happened, I got a little bit distracted. I got to my computer at quarter past nine, and tickets had almost sold out. And I actually started the process of purchasing these two tickets. And then my phone rang. I needed to take the call. I got distracted. I came back at about 11 o'clock, and all the tickets had completely sold out. And, uh, and I was so disappointed because, you know, all the tickets were booked for the wedding, and of course that was all going to happen. But I thought, oh, what a shame. And for for that day, it was just this terrible feeling of missing out. It felt like everyone else had got the tickets except for me. And thankfully, um, through a friend of a friend, I was able to secure some tickets from someone who had a member's seat and wasn't going to go. Um, Last year, uh, a week before my brother's wedding in Port Douglas, where Bronnie and I were looking forward to going and sharing that time together, she had surgery on her hip and unfortunately was unable to attend the wedding. And so she was seeing photos of the wedding on her phone, both that I was sending her and that she was seeing on Facebook. And it was that terrible feeling of missing out. 
I wonder about you. Can you think of an occasion or an event where you were the one who missed out? And sometimes when we miss out, it feels like we're the only one. (laughs) Which is not always the case. But certainly in the case of Thomas, it was. He was the only one amongst the disciples that missed out on seeing Jesus. You know, missing the tickets for a football game or missing a family wedding is one thing. But missing out on seeing the resurrected Jesus on Easter Sunday is an entirely different thing. Thomas missed out. We come to John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. There's some significant and weighty themes that emerge from these verses. Namely, faith and doubt. But also in this passage we see new birth, to be born again in a sense. Jesus gives a beatitude, a blessing, that in fact it is a blessing if you believe without seeing. And we have an amazing proclamation of the divinity of Jesus from Thomas, my Lord and my God. And that's why we find ourselves in this passage this morning, because again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're actually as a church going through a whole year focusing on Jesus, and we've spent each term considering a different aspect of his life, his teaching, his ministry, and this term we're considering the divinity of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus. Jesus is both fully God, the manhood that we considered last term, and Jesus is God, the majesty of Jesus. Thomas is an interesting character. We know that he is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Um, In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is mute. We only just get a name um, in the account of the disciples. But in John's Gospel, Thomas appears on three occasions. In all three occasions, he speaks. And we learn a little bit about Thomas through each of these um, occasions. Thomas is certainly best known as Doubting Thomas. But that's not exactly the picture that all three of these passages paint for us when we look at him more fulsomely. So the first time we encounter Thomas is in John chapter 11 verse 16 and the context of this is that Jesus in John chapter 8 and his disciples have left Jerusalem after Jesus claims that before Abraham was I am and in a sense what Jesus was saying there was that he was equating himself to be equal with God. And from that moment on, Jesus became incredibly unpopular with the Jewish leaders and authorities. He was, if you like, a wanted man. And Jesus and his disciples actually move out of Jerusalem at that time. And in John chapter 11, they are in Bethany, away from Jerusalem. And this is when Lazarus dies. And the women come to Jesus, and the message has come that Lazarus has died and want Jesus to return to do something about their brother. And Thomas, knowing that for Jesus to return to Jerusalem is potentially a, a life-threatening scenario, says to, and to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. What we see of Thomas in this verse is a firm devotion and commitment to Jesus. 
This is not the doubting Thomas that we've come to know from John chapter 20. This is the Thomas who was confidently standing by his Lord and prepared to even give his life for Jesus if it came to that. And then in John chapter 14, we again encounter Thomas at the Last Supper. And Jesus is sharing this meal with his disciples and he's preempting them for what is about to happen. He knows that he will die and return to his father. And he's wanting to comfort and give assurance to his disciples about where he is going. And Thomas poses the question, he wants clarity. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus answers famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas found himself missing out on that first appearance of Jesus on Easter Sunday. In the passage that we come to today, a week has passed. But if we just go back a week The disciples were in the upper room. It was Easter Sunday. Jesus had already appeared to Mary in the garden and to Cleopas on the road to Emmaus. And then we are told that on the evening of Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared amongst his disciples. There were 10. Judas was no longer part of the group and Thomas was not there. But during his time with them in the upper room, we read in Luke's gospel that Jesus showed them his wounds And he ate a piece of fish, proving that he was not a ghost. And in John chapter 20, Jesus actually gives them a mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, in a sense, uh, so that's kind of the context of what had happened the week before. And this whole week had passed. And I imagine that during that week, the disciples were talking a lot about that famous encounter with Jesus. And I imagine that Thomas felt, you know, very much as though he had missed out. And it's a terrible feeling, isn't it, when everybody else seems to be talking about a particular event or occasion and you seem to be the one that had missed out. And Thomas perhaps became more and more doggedly kind of um, determined that unless, these are his words, I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put hand into his side, I will not believe. Now what Thomas is saying here is that unless I get to experience the very thing that you all experienced, I will not believe. In one sense, it's totally reasonable that Thomas wants to experience the very thing that all of the disciples had experienced. But here we, we see this concept of doubt being raised. And it's important that we recognise that doubt is not excluded from faith. Thomas had demonstrated a strong conviction of faith back in John chapter 11. But in John chapter 20, he's not so sure anymore. And this could be true of us. We might be journeying through life, going really, really strong for the Lord in our faith, and then some kind of traumatic or life-altering event occurs. And all of a sudden, we might find ourselves asking questions, wrestling with God. Where are you, God? We might ask. 
You know, doubt is not excluded from faith. And throughout the journey of life and faith, there might be times when we do experience doubt. So doubt is not divorced from faith. Faith never excludes doubt. However, doubt is not meant to be a permanent position that we remain in. Doubt must lead to a decision. Ideally, it must lead to a decision of belief. And that's what happened for Thomas. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. In a sense, it's kind of take two. It's the exact same scene as it was a week ago. They are, it's in the evening. They're in the upper room. The doors were locked. And we read in chapter 20, the reason the doors were locked was because of fear of the Jewish authorities. The disciples perhaps felt as though the fate of Jesus could in fact become their fate as his key followers. So the disciples are in this gathered room. Thomas is now with them. And the dominant emotion, even though the ten disciples, excluding Thomas, had seen Jesus, they had touched his wounds, they had experienced him, they had received a blessing and a mission from him, the dominant emotion that the author John wants to communicate to us, one week on from the resurrection, is fear. Fear remains the dominant emotion. And it is into this context of fear that Jesus appears and speaks words of peace. Peace be with you. It's actually a common Hebrew greeting. Peace be with you. Shalom. But when Jesus speaks these words, it is anything but common. Remember what the angels sang at the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and to all on earth, peace upon upon whom God's favour rests. And in a sense, the ministry and the life of Jesus for those who are his... He brings peace. It could certainly be fair to say that Jesus will bring division. He does and he will. But when all is said and done, the end outcome of Jesus ruling and reigning is peace. And there are times, aren't there, through life when more than ever we need to hear these words. We need to hear the words of Jesus in the midst of fear, speak peace. When life does not turn out how we expect, you know, many of us have a script as to how life is going to play itself out. And very often that script at some point goes off the rails. And we find ourselves living a very different story to the one we perhaps thought we would. More than ever, we need to hear the words of Jesus. Peace be with you. Peace be with you because I am here. (laughs) Peace be with you because I am here. Jesus is with you. 
whatever script you find yourself in right now, here today, please be assured that Jesus says to you, peace be with you. And just the knowledge of his presence with you, may that be enough for you. The knowledge of his presence with you, that's all you need, ultimately, to know that he is with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas's doubts are now in the balance. He sees Jesus face to face. We don't know if Thomas took Jesus up on his offer. But one thing is for sure. In this moment... Thomas could not deny that Jesus was alive. Jesus was here addressing him face to face. The Greek says, Be not faithless, but faithful. Thomas had been faithless. Jesus called him to be faithful. To be faithful is to be full of faith. To be full of faith. When you think about the word faithful, and I'm not referring to the faithfulness of God, but I'm referring to what it means for you and I to be faithful. When you think about being faithful, what do you think about? For me, when I think about being faithful, I think about longevity. I think about staying the course. No matter what comes, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to stay married to Bron because I made vows to do so. And our, our marriage will go through ups and downs, but I've committed myself to be a faithful husband. I want to stay the course. I want to stay the course as a pastor God's called me to ministry. And and there's going to be times when it's difficult and hard and lonely. But there'll be wonderful times when it's, 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 it's incredible. But through it all, I've been called to be faithful and stay the course. So I want to stay the course. As a follower of Jesus, most importantly, as a disciple, I want to stay the course through the ups and downs of being a follower. I want to stay the course. But here's the thing. My understanding of faithfulness all depends on me. (laughs) You see, the common denominator in all of those things is that I hang in there and that when things get tough, I've got to stay the course. So that interpretation and that understanding of faithfulness actually hinges on me. However, To be full of faith suggests that it hinges all on Jesus. To be full of faith in him, 
You see, our salvation is not something that we can earn because of our good works. It's not offered to us if we stay the course for the rest of our lives. Now, staying the course is, of course, a good and honourable and noble thing that God calls us to do, and we should do it. But I love this. Perhaps we need to view, I've been really convicted this week, perhaps we need to view faithfulness, not so much about our performance of staying the course and exercising longevity, but faithfulness is resting in the finished work of the only faithful one. (laughs) And Jesus invites Thomas not to be faithless, but to be faithful, to be full of faith. And in this moment, just as your knees wobble and give way if you were to faint, Thomas's doubts give way and he falls to his knees, I imagine, and worships my Lord and my God. And just like that, the doubt goes and the faithfulness comes. And the faithfulness, again, is nothing that Thomas has done. It's the recognition that he is now standing in the presence of the truly faithful one. In this moment, Thomas declares Jesus as Lord and God. This is an incredible moment of proclamation of Jesus as being divine, as being God. And Jesus does not rebuke or reject the words that Thomas uses. He accepts them because they are a true reflection of who he is. As God, Jesus is entirely worthy of our praise and our worship. And it is why much of our praise and worship is directed to the person of Jesus, because he is God and he is worthy. In the Greek, the word kyrios has a range of different meanings. It can mean simply a a, a term of respect, like we would use the word sir, It refers to one who is a master or an owner or a teacher. It can also refer to a divine figure or person. It depends on the context. The word theos used for God, however, simply means divine or divinity. There is no possibility of it meaning anything other than God. Now, for ancient readers, there would have been two things that were happening in their minds when they read Thomas's profession of Jesus as Lord and God. That title, Lord and God, was actually ascribed to the Roman emperor. And to declare that Jesus is Lord and God is equally to declare that Caesar is not. That's a significant thing. Secondly, they would have known that the term or reference Lord and God was used of none other than Yahweh in the Old Testament. We see in the Psalms, for example, in chapter 30 and 35, Lord my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God, 
and Lord, we read. With these words of Thomas in John chapter 20, we see an absolute climax in John's gospel. John's gospel is, in a sense, book-ended by these wonderful claims of the divinity of Jesus. John opens his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And then in John chapter 20, right near the end of the conclusion of John's gospel, many scholars believe that chapter 21 was added on later, that in fact this is almost just as the gospel is about to conclude, we have this proclamation from a person, no doubt a person who even had their doubts, proclaiming that Jesus is God. John the author states that, and he concludes his gospel with one of the disciples confessing it. In the moment when Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. In fact, the Greek says, the Lord of me and the God of me. In this moment, Thomas is reborn. He experiences a new birth. All of a sudden, he has a new mission. And Thomas, actually, church history would teach us, Thomas was the apostle to India and responsible for the spread of the gospel in India. He experienced a moment of renewal and rebirth. Surely this is Josh and Rebecca's desire for baby Lena as they give thanks for their precious little daughter as she comes to them in this new life. They're coming today praying that the day will come when she will place her trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour and experience that rebirth of coming to know and put our trust in Jesus. Our passage concludes in verse 29 by Jesus saying, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus shortly ascended after this incident and from that point on, every single person other than the Apostle Paul who Jesus appeared to has been blessed because we've believed without seeing. <laughs> Amazing. Doesn't mean that it wasn't an incredible blessing to believe because of seeing, but if we choose to believe without seeing, we've been blessed. And, and that's so true, isn't it? To believe in Jesus is a wonderful blessing. To know faith, to know that Jesus is with us. What a blessing. You know, our lives go off script. And we have the comforting words of Jesus. Peace be with you. No matter what happens, I will be with you and I will be victorious. 
and when all is said and done, it will be okay. That is an untold blessing. But for those who do not believe, where is the comfort and hope and peace there? There is none, and it's tragic. So if you believe, and you've obviously believed without seeing, you're blessed. To believe is to be blessed. Belief is a huge theme that runs all the way through John's Gospel. And in fact, at the very end of his Gospel, just a couple of verses on, he writes that the very purpose of his writings is that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and have life in his name. And we see Thomas experiencing that life from that moment on. It's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord. It's one thing to believe in God. Many people have a vague belief in God. Many people believe in Jesus. It's another thing to say, my Lord and my God, the Lord of me and the God of me. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your God? The invitation is to receive him as such. I just want to take a moment now just to be present to the Holy Spirit and to sit with those words, my Lord and my God. in a special way. If you've experienced a a conviction, if this morning you would like to join Thomas and say, my Lord and my God, I would love to pray with you. So I invite you to take that offer and just... Come and receive prayer at the end of our service if you would like.
And if a wave of people come forward, then I invite others to come forward and join me in praying for our brothers and sisters. But could I pray for all of us together now in a prayer of response? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our King. You are our risen Lord and Saviour. You are Lord. You are our Master, our Leader, the one whom we follow and serve. You are also our God. You are equal in the Godhead with the Father and the Spirit. And we worship you and elevate you to your rightful place as God. Holy Spirit, may you bring comfort to those who need comfort. May you bring conviction to those who need conviction. And may you lead and guide all of us ever closer to the Lord Jesus. May our eyes remain firmly fixed on him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We place our faith not in ourselves and our own efforts to follow you. We place our faith in you, Jesus, in your faithfulness and in your complete and finished work on the cross and in your resurrection. We love you. We adore you. We worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite